solo podcast number two what's going on people i'm back just me today unfortunately for you guys yes i know because you love dealing with me when chris isn't here but i'm here to talk about the movie that's going to be wrapping up the summer that being nia DaCosta and jordan peele's 2021 take on candy man while this summer has definitely had its ups and downs this is i would say probably the first movie of the summer that i've actually been excited to talk about and i'll let you guys stay tuned to find out exactly what i'm talking about What's going on, guys? Happy to be here. Happy to be back on the podcast, going live again for the first time in a while. I know we went live two weeks ago for our 100th episode, but, uh, well, you know how that goes with celebrations and everything and schedules. Chris, unfortunately, could not be here. He's go currently going back to school. He's got a lot on his plate right now, so I volunteered to soldier this one out, go solo again, because I love entertaining you guys, because let's face it, not only do I love this, but what else do I have going on in my life right now? Oh, my God. But anyways, enough with the self-deprecation for now. Um, we What's it called? Coming to you live on a Tuesday night as well. So this is different. This is interesting. This is new. And at first, I'm not going to lie. I was a little bit skeptical because I'm I'm like, okay, it's Tuesday. Nothing good ever happens on a Tuesday, you know, because there's this big misnomer out there in the world. Shut up, motorcycles. There's this big misnomer out there in the world that Mondays are the worst day of the weekend. Yeah, it definitely takes a little bit in order to get used to, you know, the work week again after, you know, that weekend of partying. But here's my thing about that, right? You kind of get all of Sunday to relax, right? Sunday's the relax day, right? The goal is you go out, party your ass off Friday, repeat it Saturday, then Sunday's the collective, you know, what's it called? The You know, the, the, the reawakening, let's call it. I can never fucking remember words anymore. The reawakening from the party, you know, the recoup, the recuperation, that's the word I was looking for, the recuperation from the party of the weekend, and then you're good to go for Monday. I find that Tuesdays are actually worse because by Tuesday, you know, Monday you're still recovering from the weekend in a weird way. You know, you've still got the high of the weekend in your head. Tuesday, that's when the mundanity of the week set in. That's when you're like, fuck, I'm back at work. This is the worst. This is just awful, you know? And, 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 usually, and the problem is, you know, again, I'm not... I've never once considered myself to be a religious or a superstitious person in any way, shape, or form, but I definitely think there's something to be said about the fact that it's like, yeah, if you only ever have negative thoughts, then it's obviously only negative things are going to happen to you. And you know, there's definitely something to be said about that with the interaction of people versus the real world and everything. And hey, the, you know, segues, because that, of course, ties in to the movie that I'm going to be talking about with you guys tonight, which is, of course, Nia DaCosta and Jordan Peele's 2021 take on Candyman. Now, this is a little bit of an interesting one because, again, as I've stated many, 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 many times before, just recently on the show, we're, we're doing a first-time watch series for all the Halloween sequels and the build-up to Halloween kills in two months. You know, I, I, I literally made it clear this past week. I hate slasher movies. I hate them. I hate them with every fiber of my being. I hate all the tropes. I almost always hate the characters i old the plots are always predictable the kills usually are pretty good but that's really depending on the movie 
Um, and the, the and, and most of the time, it, it, to me, it comes down to a couple of things. It comes down to the fact that the killer is usually not actually a character. They're usually just a force. You know, they're, you know, like I have a big problem with, with the Michael Myers characterization in Halloween and the Jason character from the Friday the 13th movies, which again, you know, the Friday the 13th movies to me are particularly egregious because they take off, uh, you know, because they are quite literally one of many direct ripoffs for the Halloween movies. But obviously as you go throughout the eighties more, you get into, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street movies, you start to get into this idea of like, let's call it the charismatic supernatural serial killer right and well obviously the candy man as a character is not at all a takeoff on freddy krueger there are definitely a lot of similarities there you know both supernatural killers both that were you know both that were even though there were widely different reasons that went into it both that got killed by involving both had deaths involving massive groups of people and then came back as specters in order to torment um their perceived aggravators you know almost always you know, with, with a weird appendage on one hand. There's a lot of similarities there, but obviously Candyman has its origins in literature as opposed to Nightmare on Elm Street because Candyman is obviously based off of a novel by uh, Clive Barker. And so you have the original movie that comes out in 1992. And I think the most interesting thing about that original movie when I watched it, because I watched it last year for our big Shocktober event, I think one of the most interesting things that caught my eye is the fact that unlike a majority of these other killers, the Candyman actually had this really interesting backstory and lore and mythos where it's all about the fact that he was one of many, uh, what's it called? One of many African-Americans in this country that had a vicious injustice done to him due to circuit, due to just, you know, simple being a human being, you know, having the audacity to fall in love with a white woman. And then of course being chased and picketed by a mob, who ended, who ended up, you know, viciously, brutally killing him, the character of Daniel Robitaille, and allowing bees to consume his corpse. And now he comes across as a specter who haunts people and will viciously murder them if they say his name five times in the mirror. Pretty simple premise, right? And, and the original uh, follows, uh, you know, this young college student portrayed by Virginia Madsen who's seeking to explore the idea of the Candyman and inadvertently unleashes him. And the original, I think the most interesting thing about it is the fact that it really is like an independent art house take on the slasher genre. And I think that's what allows it to stand out so much more than some of the other films to me. But at the end of the day, I still think my biggest takeaway from that movie was the fact that I'm like, man, what a horny fucking serial killer <laughs> this is. Cause like, yeah, Freddie, Fr Freddie obviously was fucked up as a character, but like Freddie at the end of the day, like he, when he got, yeah, yeah he cracked his one liners and yeah, he had his fun. But at the end of the day, he got business done and he was about the killing. Candyman, I'm not gonna lie. I, I definitely think that he's more a little bit more about uh, you know the, the seduction, you know the, the charm, you know, and it makes sense. Tony Todd is, I mean, far be it for me. It's just a, it's just a you know a massive disservice is the fact that we've only seen him majority in voiceover performances. But goddamn, talk about a smooth, charming persona right there. Oh my god, like that's probably the only serial killer where I'm like, man, I almost wish he would kill me. Goddamn, just listen to that smooth, silky voice of his. But so you have this movie where. Uh, what's it called? You you have this movie where I, I think one of the most interesting things is that obviously, you know, the idea of horror reboots, the you know, a couple of the horror reboots that we've been getting over the last couple of years, that's nothing new. They've been doing that. Really, the, that trend really started in the early 2000s, obviously, you know, with the Freddy versus Jason movie. And then they tried to reboot both those characters near the end of the decade, like completely like start from scratch. And, you know, those were obviously well received. 
we're, we're not well received, I should say. We're not well received at all. And what's interesting is that the studios actually managed to, I think, tap into this really interesting idea is, okay, why are we going to just try and reboot these characters when, A, people are so beyond used to the slasher formula? Like, you want to talk about a genre of movie and a type of storytelling that is so beyond easy to disseminate to different audiences of all different generations. Like, say what you will, right? It's obviously, we talk all the time about movies that are owned that will only work for certain audiences, certain groups of people, but almost universally, everyone pretty much knows a slasher movie. Everyone knows kind of what they're going to get from it, you know? And at the end of the day, whether you like it or not, you pretty much know what you're going to get. So, especially with some of the more iconic ones, right? You know, like I said, Halloween, Michael Myers, Friday the 13th, Jason, Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy, and I would say, honestly, the Candyman has taken his place kind of in that roster of these iconic slasher serial killers. And what the studios have done recently, which is really interesting, is they've essentially said, okay, everybody knows all of these characters. Everybody loves them. So why don't we just soft reboot them? We can essentially have these movies that are almost not quite shot-for-shot remakes, but very similar in style to the originals and market them and people will come and eat them up. And that's exactly what happened with the 2018 version of Halloween that we saw that David Gordon Green and Danny McBride did. And now you're kind of seeing that continue, but and new. And the weird thing is we almost actually got one of those movies earlier this, another one of those movies earlier this year, obviously with Spiral. That movie was what it was, right? I'm, I'm going to bring that back around near the end of this discussion because that movie Oh man, oh man, uh, you, you guys can go back to the, the beginning of the summer when we started this. Again, it, it's just, fit, you want to talk about fitting poetry coming full circle with where we started it with Spiral and now we're ending it with Candyman. I mean, if, if that's not poetry right there, then I don't know what is. But I find it really interesting that you, so you have Jordan Peele having his take on this movie, right? And and you already know that, like, you know that you're in good hands when the star of the franchise is giving you his seal of approval because in a 2018... So, so flash forward, I should say, back a couple bit. In September of 2018, Jordan Peele was in talks to produce the sequel uh, through his company, Monkey Paw Productions. And then in an interview with Nightmare on Film Street, Tony Todd, the original um, Candyman, stated, I'd rather have him do it Someone with intelligence is going to be thoughtful and dig into the whole racial makeup of who Candyman is and why he existed in the first place. And I find that really interesting because that immediately tells me, okay, so we're getting something that's going to be a little bit different and it's not just a straight sequel to the original that's just going to you know, be the same thing all over again because that's obviously the joke about most horror franchises is the fact that because it is such an easy formula, it's they're so cheap to make, you could essentially do the same premise over and over again and people will show up and continue to eat it up every single time. There's a reason why horror has had a hard time, you know, gaining the legitimacy that it deserves because for so long it has just been looked at as cheap, disposable fare. And one of the things that I've enjoyed so much about the horror movies that we've gotten recently is the fact that for once it feels like they're not being treated like that. And if anything, it's almost like they're taking all of the tricks and tropes before and actually using them to tell some really interesting stories along the way. And I personally think that even though it's very heavily flawed, this movie, we've got another one of those here where you have this movie, you have Jordan Peele writing the script, uh, co-writing the script with Nia DaCosta, who was hired. This is her first, you know, feature length film that she's done. I'm not too familiar with her, with her work that she's done up until now, but essentially what you have here is you have a semi soft reboot that is also serving as a direct sequel to the first one. This is not at all trying to be like, oh, okay, this is like, you know, several years after the first one, but like it's with a new batch of characters. No, this is like directly a sequel to the original. They blatantly make references to the first one. It is very similar to 
the 2018 Halloween movie. And what they're doing is they're essentially getting into the lore of Candyman, where how the idea of the Candyman is bigger than just one person. Where in the original, like Candyman started out and it was just simply, it was one guy. It was Daniel Robital, right? That was his name. That was the Candyman. This movie is basically stating, oh, Daniel Robital was not the only Candyman. Not at all. In fact, there have been hundreds of Candyman throughout the history. You know, I, I got to be careful there because otherwise I'm going to end up saying it five times and hey, I'm not getting caught by that. No way. I'm not, I'm not like these dumb horror movie characters. But so I guess now we should get into the plot of the movie in general, figure out what exactly this movie is about. So this movie follows Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. Oh my God, say that name 10 times fast. Uh, in his next role, after a couple of roles, you know, uh, on the up, and he's been on the up and up for the last couple of years, obviously, you know, Black Panther, Black Panther, Black Manta, in Aquaman, if I could friggin' speak, being his kind of big claim to fame, then Watchmen, then Trial of the Chicago 7, obviously last year. And now he's in this movie where he plays this character named Anthony, who is a artist living in Chicago with his girlfriend, played by Tiana Paris, another superhero insert. They're basically kind of these bougie, upper middle class or attempting to perceive themselves as such, um, you know, black Americans, obviously, who are attempting to kind of make their way in the in the primarily white dominated liberal dominated art space he's trying to figure out exactly what it is that he's what what it is that he wants to say what he wants his mark on the art world to be you know very very loft very lofty stuff you know it, it, it's kind of the usual stuff I, I think the most interesting thing about it when this movie starts is the fact that like just the way it's shot the way it's edited together, the way the score plays underneath, even though Peel does not direct this movie, his influence and style, this is another Spielberg situation where it's like, no, this is more than just them sticking their name on as an executive producer credit. His style is all over this movie. I was getting Get Out and Us Fives from the minute that this movie opened up. It was, you know, the, the, the camera does this really interesting thing where it's pointed up at the cityscape this entire time as you're following the tracking shot throughout the credits, right after the opening scene. It's got this very, uh, you know, it's it, it's got this sense where you're constantly looking up at the city, right? You're constantly trying to attain something that you can't have, right? Which in a weird way is almost kind of the opposite of the original, where the original was all about, you know, this woman of, you know, this person of privilege going and trying to understand kind of the unprivileged side and understanding, you know, just some of the horrors that come with living there. And this is almost the opposite, where it's almost where, you know, you're now down from a place of non-privilege looking to get up, which I find to be a little bit ironic because I definitely think that these main characters aren't suffering by any means. You know, they've got a nice-ass apartment. You know, these girlfriends are freaking art gallery. They're like, like, they got money, you know? They got money. So I, it's definitely an idea that already off the bat works much more so from a metaphorical sense than an actual literal sense. You know, kind of one of those things, you know, kind of going back to the whole friends thing where it's like, obviously, you know, they're supposed to be like, you know, broke mid-20-somethings, but how the fuck can they afford that apartment, you know? it's I don't know if this movie's trying to say something quite similar to that, but I feel like I'm getting similar vibes to that idea, you know? And obviously, Anthony is somebody who, again, is trying to make his mark on the world. He's trying to, you know, become a serious artist. And so he learns of the Cabrini Green myth, uh, obviously, you know, through a discussion with um, what's it called? Uh, you know, after they have, uh, you know, his girlfriend's brother over and he basically tells them the story. So he goes to Cabrini Green. He starts taking pictures everywhere. He gets stung by a bee. He's like, whatever, that's, that's not going to do anything. And uh, then he runs into Coleman Domingo's character who portrays the character of William Burke, who's kind of, you know, just a regular laundromat owner who introduces him and kind of fleshes out the story of Candyman. Because the whole thing, right, is that the gay brother, you know, Tiana Paris's brother, 
tells him the story of Helen Lyle, you know, the Virginia Madsen character from the first one, kind of in a way already, you know, kind of christening that movie into myth, even though it's only been 30 years since it. And then here, you know, will you have this character of William Burke that's here in order to kind of be, you know, the, you know, it's in all of those stories, you know, the character that kind of, you know, informs the main character, the hero, right? If we're going to, if we're going to go a little Campbell here of his quest, you know, of the backstory, you know, of the antagonist that he's about to face off against. And what's it called? And obviously there's, there's a couple of not so subtle messages that are thrown in there about gentrification, obviously, and everything that kind of happened to Cabrini Green, how it's kind of been abandoned, you know, by all the people, you know, by all the, you know, rich white people who are coming in, buying the land for dirt cheap and then flipping it over. And the only people that are left to kind of remember the area as it was are kind of the older residents. You know, I've, I've, I got a little bit of a, of a conflict as far as that goes, this idea of, oh, you know, you have to remember it. It's like, yeah, but why remember it if it was just shitty and miserable and full of pain? But so that happens. So they go. So, so obviously, you know, he now has this mass revelation. He's like, okay, finally, I've gotten the thing that I'm looking for. I'm going to put it all into this art. And he starts putting in all, putting all of his work into all of this different crazy art. And then, of course, he has to commit the ultimate cardinal sin that everyone knows you're not supposed to do. Because, you know, common sense, just for the fact that, again, we're in the meta age, every movie character has to be meta and self-aware, so they all know about the horror tropes. Again, it's kind of, a, I, I think, a big flaw, and I, I think a small part of the reason as to why a lot of movies don't work now, which is that every single movie character, because in order to attempt to appeal to the internet generation, who are all smarter than they think they are, they have to, every single movie character now has to be self-aware of all of the movie tropes. You know, and as a result, it kind of kills it because it's like, okay, but the the storytellers are still trying to do these tropes. So by having the main characters be aware of the tropes, but still doing them, it's kind of it's kind of self defeating to what it is that you're trying to go for. Because if anything, because if the characters that we're watching are aware of the things that we're aware of, then why do we care? You know, it, it, it it's kind of a thing that I've been noticing over the last couple of years. But of course, Anthony commits the cardinal sin where he's fooling around with his girlfriend, you know, he's, he's, he's high on life, and he says the name five times in the mirror. Again, I'm, I'm not going to vote for it again. He says it in the mirror, and next thing you know, the candy man is back, and he's running amok, and of course, there are deaths to be had. So that, that, that's pretty much like the, the, the central kind of gist of the movie, right? But that's just the setup, right? The interest for the rest of the movie comes from two things. One, the idea that the Candyman in question that is murdering everyone is not actually the character of Daniel Robitaille. It's actually a different character. Uh, it's the character of um, Sherman Field, who is told, um, what's it called, whom Burke tells Anthony about, who when, when Burke was a child, Fields was a hook-handed man whom the police believed was responsible for putting a razor blade in pieces of candy that ended up in the hands of, the white, of a white girl. And then when, uh, what's it called? And then obviously when Burke ended up running into Sherman, who was hiding in the walls of the Cabrina Green complex, uh, he accidentally alerted the police to his presence and the police arrested him. And while Sherman was later exonerated due to the fact that more children were popping up with razor blades in their candy, so it obviously couldn't have been him, the legend goes that the legend goes that even though you know, he was declared innocent that he was later found beat to death by the police. And that, you know, and so obviously saying his name five times in the mirror will summon him, obviously. So obviously we're already getting, to the, getting into this idea of, uh, you know, you, using the idea of this specter as almost this like watchful spirit in order to, uh, what's it called, whenever there is, you know, vicious injustice done towards African-Americans. And the second thing is the fact that, over the course of the film, Anthony starts noticing that the, the what he thought was nothing more than a bee sting is turning into this weird infection that is spreading up his arm. Now, 
this is where we get into a few of my problems with the movie because this is a movie where and, and I've seen a couple of these movies before, but it's been a minute since I've actually seen one where I can actually talk about it in depth because I think there is a lot of of merit for this movie that this movie has going on for it. But unfortunately, it's another one of those movies that's kind of get gets held back by the actual quote unquote realistic elements of the story. It's one of the instances where it's trying so hard to go for its metaphors that it kind of forgets about some basic storytelling and plot functions and it ends up kind of falling victim to a couple of cliches so number one the fact that all the people who die in this movie are dumb white people that's problem number one which i'm like okay that's cool and all but and, and like i understand that that goes with the point of the candy man but like it gets a little bit obvious and again, it's something that I honestly would have expected more from Peel about because I, the, the thing that I've always that I've admired a lot about Jordan Peele's movies is the fact that he doesn't go out of his way to make the white people in his movies the generic, you know, kind of cliches and stereotypes. He's always gone out of his way and made them sound really rich, and, you know, surprisingly like really interesting and nuanced. Like the villains in Get Out are really fascinating in the sense of like, okay, it's the, they're doing these horrific, they, they're committing these horrific acts not out of a sense of you know they they are prejudiced against african americans they're doing it because if anything they almost respect them and admire them and want to be more like them it's a really fascinating interesting twist if you can get your head around it you know and even i think continues that theme in us which is the idea of quite literally you know these lost souls that are left behind you know regardless of color you know these clones these offshoots that are left behind by the government and now have come out to reclaim their place in the sun he's always had this really interesting relationship with kind of racial relations within america that goes so far beyond just the kind of plain old simple white people bad kind of mantra that's been in movies before you know and and that's kind of what i really really respect about him as a filmmaker just simply because not not because you know that type of a message is anything that's uh you know that that that, that is not important but because it's just it, to me it, it has no place because it's so sim it's so beyond simplistic and it does and to me it actually does more damage to the ideas that they're trying to get across so that's number one number two is the fact that it once again falls victim to the i it once again falls victim to the fact that the third act is just pure schlock just absolute pure schlock. Like it's, it, it, I'll give the movie this. It never goes into the territory where it's, where where it's this like super heavy weighty think piece. It always does kind of have that underlying level of like schlock to it. But I, I think what what separates the third act from the rest of the movie is the fact that for the majority of the movie, the movie has this really interesting sense of underlying dread and terror. And when they build up to the kills, which are fucking incredible, so, some of the best kills I've ever seen in any horror movie ever, the way they're choreographed, the way that they're done, the way that they're built up to, you know, it, it's really, really well fascinating. You know, the, the, the colors, the playing around with light. There's this one, there's this one shot where there, where there's this woman where Anthony goes to visit this this critic who's you know of course bashing his art for no reason other than the fact that she's a critic. Okay, you, I'm just gonna put this out there right now. They real filmmakers really gotta stop with making critics the villains or, or just antagonistic characters in their movies because it never works. It's never subtle and it's always kind of you know defeats the purpose of what they're going for. It always kind of shines it's like oh okay we we see how you feel now. But as far as so so he goes to visit her and then after he leaves, um what's it called he he summons the Candyman. And she and the Candyman viciously and brutally murders his critic. But the way that it's shot, it's so fucking dope. Where he leaves, and then the camera pulls out from her apartment right as she starts getting lifted up by something that by you know by invisible force flung around her apartment. 
and thrown against, you know, her window and dragged across it. You see the blood stain and the camera keeps zooming out more and more and more as it becomes more distant. And you see the shot of all the buildings across. It's amazingly well done. But, but again, the kind of underlying what it's trying to go for versus how it's actually presenting its material, there's a really, really big cognitive dissonance there. And normally, I just kind of disregard that and enjoy the movie for what it is. But for a movie that is, I would say, at least attempting to make some sort of a think, some sort of a think piece statement, right? It's I, I don't think it's necessarily fully fleshed out. I think it needs a little bit more work. But for the most part, it actually had a lot of stuff going for it. I think that kind of its inherent statements on, you know, how African-Americans perceive themselves uh, as, as far as, you know, you w wanted to climb the social ladder versus trying to maintain that piece of, you know, that holds that makes them unique. But what is it about that piece that makes them unique? And why is it that they feel, you know, and why is it that they feel that they need to compete so hard within these artistic lenses when they can just continue to be original while also at the same time having, you know, the, of course, having, you know, the police brutality aspect as far as, you know, kind of the whole, okay, now they almost have this this vengeful specter hanging over their heads that's going to protect them almost. It ties also into this interesting idea of folklore that also encircles the movie, which comes about in a scene where Anthony visits his mom, who, and, and, th and again, this is where the connections of the first one come in as well, where his mom played in what the only other returning actress from the original film besides Tony Todd, that being um, Vanessa A. Williams, who, oh my God, has not aged today. I don't think, I mean, we, I've talked a lot about, you know, people in Hollywood that don't age, but Vanessa Williams, whatever you're doing, props, because fucking, oh my God, I swear to God, she looks younger now than she did 30 years ago in the original. It's insane. She looks younger than fucking Yaya. It's fucking crazy. Like, I don't know how to describe it. He goes to see her. Um, after he hears a rumor about, uh, what's it called about, you know, the, the baby that obviously that Helen Lyle rescued in the original, you know, and about how this twist, this, the story was kind of twisted on its head. And that's kind of, you know, the thing, which is where, when the, you know, the brother, the Nathan Stewart Jarrett character, you know, Tiana Paris's brother tells the story in the beginning of the movie, he, it, it, it's, it's a little change a little bit from the original and it's made out like Helen Lyle was the villain where obviously, you know, they're playing into the narrative of the fact, okay, they didn't actually know whether that she was, that she had summoned the candy man. So, um, everybody thought that she was the killer, that she was committing all those brutal murders and that she had kidnapped, um, Anthony as a baby. Uh, oops, spoiler. I'll get into that in a minute that she had accidentally kidnapped, that she had kidnapped the baby and then that she died in the fire as a result of going insane. But obviously, we know everybody who's watched the original knows that that's not the case because obviously it was the fact that Helen was instead kept getting caught in the wrong place at the wrong time when the Candyman was enacting all these murders and instead attempted to save the baby and died in the process uh, around the original. So obviously, Anthony learns this from his mother and also, of course, discerns that, surprise, surprise, he was the baby that Helen saved. And obviously, his mother didn't tell him this because she wanted him to have a normal life. So this, of course, gets into the idea that, oh, okay, is Anthony now the spiritual successor? Was he always set to kind of inherit the title of the Candyman? Has he been cursed this entire time? So that gets into this whole idea of free will versus preordained destiny that, quite frankly, the movie did not bring up at all before. So that, so that, that's a whole different thing, right? And that's before we even get into the third act. But... I, I think the interesting thing there is this idea of kind of how it plays around with folklore, you know, kind of, and, and this doesn't just go for African-American. This goes for just everyone because folklore is, you know, a tremendous part 
of, you know, just of just culture and just, you know, just our way of life. You know, the idea of these fables that are passed down from, you know, these 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 um, these life lessons, you know, that always kind of have this underlying you know message in them that are passed down from generation to generation, from father to son, from mother to daughter, on and on and on throughout the time in order to kind of, you know, reinforce these ancient truths and, you know, these kind of messages that we know. And one of them is this, I, I, I think that um, his mother, obviously, I, I can't for the life of me remember her name. Um, his mother, uh, Anne-Marie, um, brings up this idea that, uh, you know, when he starts to say his name, she's like, don't even mention his name because, you know, just bringing his name up has power, you know? And I find it really interesting how she still lives in fear of this character, even though this character at least from how it's being perceived, is almost supposed to act as like this vengeful specter. And that's something really interesting. That's something that was new that really wasn't brought up in the original because the original, again, was more so playing into the socioeconomic aspects and simply portraying the Candyman as, you know, just another slasher, right? But here, you really are playing into this idea of, okay, what does this character serve? What does this character mean to this subsect of people that he, uh, you know, that obviously, you, you know, I've come come to know him the most. And I, I think there's something to that. I think there's something really, really interesting about that because that's probably the first time that we've really seen it, right? We've obviously known that throughout the course of horror movies, throughout the course of slasher movies, right? The slashers in and of themselves kind of become immortalized to the point where they almost have to, the characters almost have to become like self-aware about the immortalized aspect and nature of them, because obviously, you know, it, this goes back, even Craven did it himself when Craven did the new Nightmare movie back in 94, which was kind of almost like this meta take on Freddy Krueger, where Freddy Krueger escapes from the movie into the real world, almost, and they're making all of these statements, and now you have this idea of where, okay, before the Candyman was just, you know, a fun gimmick that you just say his name five times, and then um, watch, I did it again. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm telling you, I'm gonna be dead by the end of this podcast. The, the Candyman is going to come for me by the end of this podcast. <laughs> and, um, what's it called? You know, you just say his name five times in the mirror, and then he comes and and he kills you, and and, and in this really graphic and brutal way. But here, it gets into this idea of okay, no, he's only summoned when he's needed, and. I think that's ultimately, it's weird because it's both this movie's defining strength and its biggest weakness because that's actually a really cool idea. The problem is it's really not actually carried out until the third act and there's really no underlying thing that kind of builds up to it. The problem is that the movie is trying to make this stance on, you know, uh, what's it called? They're trying to make this artistic stance that's also doubled as a, as a slasher movie, almost like a very, very similar in a strange way to Velvet Buzzsaw, almost trying to make this weird artistic critique for the majority of its run. And then by the third act, by the time the third act rolls around, it's like, oh no, instead you've essentially, now now they have, um what's it called? Now they've, they, you know, they've essentially got their own, uh, their own version of the boogeyman, but that's going to protect them, you know, but that's not going to, but you know, and because you see it in the third act where, the, uh, okay, this is where I have to get to the third act and, and stick with me people, because this is, this is where it gets fucking bonkers. I, I know I've I know I've spoiled the movie a decent amount, but trust me, man, this is where it gets bonkers. So obviously, you know, Anthony's scar continues to spread and infect the rest of his body, and it's slowly becoming more and more apparent that he is now physically becoming the Candyman. And 
So obviously he learns more and more information about this from Burke as you know, he keeps going back to see him and it becomes more and more clear throughout the movie that Burke is clearly not all there. I'll get into that a little bit because this is the second of a couple of Coleman Domingo performances that I've seen this year where I'm just, I'm a little bit worried because I have a bad feeling that he's going to sink into type territory really fast. And I don't want that to happen because he's such a good actor, but basically, uh, what's it called? Basically, um, Brianna recalls mentioning that, uh, what's it called? Basically he goes missing, um, after he, after he finds out that he is indeed set to inherit the title of Candyman. So Brianna goes looking for him in Cabrini Green. She seeks out Burke. Burke kidnaps her and reveals that he is completely insane and reveals that he is instead, this is again, the most ludicrous part of the movie because on top of all the other kind of slight problems that go with it, this is the most ludicrous part because Burke reveals that he wants to continue the Candyman legend. And because he knows that the Candyman haunts Cabrini Green, he is going to make sure that Anthony gets killed by the cops so that way he can officially take his place as the new Candyman. Because the story goes that one can only become a candy a Candyman. There, five times. Boom. Oh, boy. I got to start looking over. One can only become you-know-who. There. See? See what I did there? One can only become you-know-who if he is killed by corrupt figures of authority. Obviously, you know, the obviously, you know, the people back in the day who ended up killing Daniel Robitaille. Obviously, the cops who killed um what's his name? Uh the cops who killed uh Sherman Fields, and now obviously Anthony. So he kidnaps Brianna. Why? I have no idea. Saws off Anthony's hand, sticks the hook in there, calls the cops with this with, with this voice. Um, Brianna escapes. Uh, Burke chases after her. She ends up killing him. Um, Anthony, who is, you know, back and forth between, you know, the candy man and not, he, she's, he is held by Brianna. The cops arrive. They shoot and kill Anthony. Brianna's arrested, of course, because this is how these movies go. And then she ends up summoning Anthony by saying his name five times. He brutally murders all the cops. Then, and this is the most surprising part, right? Because, because again, you're expecting him to be possessed by Tony Todd, but he's not. For the majority of the movie, it is this Sherman Fields character who in the movie is played by uh, Michael Hargrove. But at the end, he transforms into Tony Todd and informs her to tell everyone. And that's kind of how the movie ends on this really ominous note where it's like, okay, so now she's going to pull kind of like a truth or dare ending where she's going to, you know, kind of spread and continue the curse by saying his name. And it's ludicrous. It's it's absolutely ludicrous. It's pure schlock. It completely defeats the purpose of uh, you know of of any sort of underlying message that this movie has going for it. But it's really strange because in a weird way I didn't hate it. And I know we get into this point of okay, what is the point of artistic lens if the if the story behind it is not actually that engaging and doesn't really have a point. But that's not exactly what it is because I had this point written down where I wanted to distinctly, again, bring it back full circle. I wanted to bring this back and connect this to Spiral and say that even though I think this is a faulty, flawed movie, I still think it works better than Spiral does because Spiral, at the end of the day, feels like somebody needing to get something off of their chest. And the problem is the rest of the movie outside of that very beyond obvious, obnoxious message is so beyond generic and terrible and schlocky all the characters feel like types at the end of the day 
Um, none of them really feel compelling. Any sort of interesting parts of that movie are kind of overridden by the inherent terrible message that's kind of forcing us down our throat. There's also a really a lot of really terrible comedy in that movie's um any sort of residual good acting is completely destroyed by kind of the inherent silliness of it and the kind of the residual ridiculousness of it that goes into that movie. And well, uh, that does sound very similar to a lot of the things that happen here. Here, what I'll say is this movie has a lot of interesting and creative artistic intent. I think the buildup to the kills are done so much better. I think that the characters, while still kind of faulty and flawed, are a lot more well thought out. There's definitely a lot of thought that went into this. It's simply, it, this feels more like a matter of, okay, this just needed one or two more drafts in order to be perfect. Because let me tell you something, just watch this, like, the intent is there. The intent is absolutely there like again just from an editing standpoint this movie is a master class like as far as like nia DaCosta, props i honestly like just the way that she shot this this actually does give me hope that it's like okay someone might be able to pull off she might honestly be the next james gunn slash ryan coogler as somebody who is able to stand out from the rest of the marvel muck and actually get their creative message you know and their own kind of inherent unique vision across i i really truly do believe that which is something that i was terrified for going into this movie but at the end of the day unfortunately the art the 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 artistic lens has to be equal by the stuff that's going on in the film itself and while i definitely don't think that it's egregious as spiral there are definitely still a lot of flaws here like a lot a lot of flaws ultimately that being said, it is still an entertaining movie. I will definitely say that. Like Anybody who wants to go into this movie knowing that they are going to get a really interesting, really engrossing, really, frankly, different kind of a slasher movie, I would very, very heavily, very much heavily recommend this movie. But unfortunately for somebody who's looking a little deeper, somebody who goes in with, you know, with those kind of preconceived notions, I definitely think that the flaws are going to become noticeable. And, 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 but, but. Again, I bring those up out of love because the reason why I bring those up is because, okay, this isn't a situation of where, okay, this was doomed from the start. This was something that there was a lot of thought put into. There was a lot of actually really interesting ideas that were expressed here. It just, ultimately, they just weren't kind of polished altogether. In a weird way, it actually does feel like an interesting continuation of us because obviously that movie was criticized for not being as tight as Get Out. And it makes sense, right? Get Out was something that Jordan Peele had been working on and conceiving of and thinking about and tightening and working on for years on end. And us literally comes out like two years afterwards. Like obviously it's not going to have the same type of ire and same type of thought process, the same type of, you know, kind of gusto that Get Out had. It's not going to become like a cultural milestone. And this is the problem ultimately the one that we run into with these new up-and-coming filmmakers that have these movies that come out and end up becoming cultural milestones is it kind of ends up, unfortunately, crippling the rest of their careers, ultimately, because they end up kind of becoming beholden almost to this massive template that they've set up for themselves. And it, I, I think it ultimately does a disservice because I think there are a lot of interesting things to be found in the rest of their films. You know, obviously, we know that Jordan Peele's next directorial effort is coming out next year with the movie Nope that he's going to do with uh, with Kaluuya and Steven Yeun and Kiki Palmer. but at the end of the day, I think that while this is not a, this is no by no means a bad movie, this is also by no means a great movie, I think it's an extremely good movie. I think that it's a little bit too ambitious for its own good. And really the only point that I wanted to bring up before I wrap this up is the, the Coleman Domingo character. Because, oh my god, this is, this is the second movie that I've seen from Coleman Domingo Within only a month, Zola was only a month ago where, 
And again, I give him props. I give him props. He wants to grow out. He wants to, you know, expand his acting talent, you know, because he's been cast in these very, very specific types, you know, up until this point, you know, these very warm, these very patronly, these very, you know, comforting presences. And now they're trying to go for the opposite, right? He, you know, he is an actor's actor. I absolutely love everything that he goes for. You know, he absolutely commits to these parts that he does. He brings a tenacity, a ruthlessness, a sense of experience to these types of parts that, frankly, a lot of actors are missing he's a theater actor originally and my god between this and zola with these parts where he halfway through turns oh literally transforms his character and turns into this cackling drooling nutso completely over the top cartoon character that just like that it almost becomes hard to understand his motivation and i think it's really weird how we get two of these performances only a month out from each other. You know, obviously, you know, I, I know that there's usually not a lot of planning that goes in behind the scenes. It's just always weird to me how these movies always seem to come out within a very, very short period of time within each other. It, it's just weird. And I have to point it out when I see it, which is that friggin', you know, he starts this movie off as, you know, again, kind of the... Well, you know, as the, as the warning character, you know, the kind of the wizard, you know, the, the one who instructs the character as to what they're going to do. And then by the end, he turns out there's the twist and then he's the villain. The problem is with the way that the movie wraps up, he's almost kind of unnecessary. And at the end of the day, he ultimately becomes a prop that's just needed to get this one character from point A to point B. Very similar. It, it's so strange. It's almost exactly beat for beat like that doctor character from the Halloween 2018, where that character, again, brings up this really interesting point where he now has become seduced by this idea of who Michael Myers is and as a result, you know, kind of now has been infected by the residual evil and wants to be him, but then he gets killed in the next scene by Michael. So as a result, ends up serving as nothing more than a plot device. And this is another character that does that. So that's problem number one. And then problem number two, which also goes into the Zola character, it's almost like the emphasis is on him being crazy over him being an actually compelling character because... Uh, because again, very similar to Zola, Zola, he's this really kind of, you know, he's this mysterious figure who, you know, is Zola's, who is, you know, the, uh, the Riley Keogh character's pimp. And then when Zoe Kravitz try, you know, what, and then when Zoe Kravitz tries to leave, uh, not the Zoe Kravitz, oh my God, oh my God, when, when the Taylor, but when the Zola character tries to leave, he, he flips the script and gets out this weird Jamaican accent out of nowhere in order to try and be a sense of intimidating. It's, you know what it is? It's, it's what it is when you have a plot device character that the creators know is nothing more than a plot device character and tries to add something in there in order to try and make them seem like they're not that. And they usually start off by having something pretty good, but then it just turns out by the end, you, you realize, oh, wait, this is just a plot device character, you know? And as a result, they always have to make them super crazy, these really over-the-top cartoonish characters. And it sucks because it takes... What could be, I think, some really interesting characters that Coleman Domingo is playing and really makes them into these one-note types that I think ultimately does a disservice to him as an actor. So that's kind of like my Coleman Domingo bit right there because, again, like I, I got to call it out early for fear of that it, that there are going to be... I, I have to assume that there's going to be more of these types of performances from him coming, and I, I just want to brace you guys. I want to do you guys, the people, a favor by letting you guys know about this. And I guess in order to wrap it up, 
with my final thoughts. Candyman 2021 is a movie that, while heavily flawed, is also a movie that also gives you something that a lot of movies this year haven't, which is it actually gives you a chance to think. And not in a way that makes it feel really forced or really in your face, but in a way that actually feels subtle, that actually feels well thought out, that actually feels meticulous, that actually feels well crafted. You know, again, there is so much incredible crap that is thrown in this movie. I love the score for this movie. Oh my God. It feels like a Michael Abel score, even though it is not at all done by that. It's done by Robert A.A. Lowe. And it's really, really fascinating. Again, the tones. When I have Chris back on the show, when Chris gets back on the show, I'm going to talk to him, obviously, about uh, what's called about the score of the movie and everything. And I'm going to be really interested to see his take on that. But and and while the problems do ultimately prevent this from being a really compelling story as a movie in and of itself, I think it's really interesting. I think it's really engrossing. And I would definitely recommend this if you're looking for like that one last horror movie, you know, that one last kind of summer fun outing before the fall sets in, before we become admired by Oscar bait and before the conversation changes. And if nothing else, if you just don't want to see one good movie before the end of the year. I would very, very much recommend this. Again, it's not the best movie of the year, but it's not at all close to being the worst movie of the year, but it's also a lot higher to me than a three and a half. I'm giving this movie four out of five stars. Yeah, that's right. I said it. I give this movie four out of five stars. And just to keep you guys up to date as to what's going on for the rest of what's it called for the, for the rest of, for over the next couple of months, we've got a lot of big movies coming up. That we're going to talk about. Obviously, we've got uh, obviously Shang Chi is next week. Uh, we've got Malignant, another horror movie, another James Wan horror movie. Uh, Paul Schrader movie, The Card Counter. Uh, we've got the debut of The Morning Show season two, also on the television front. The Eyes of Tammy Faye, and then obviously once we get into October, obviously we know it's uh, October's game time. We know October's game time. We got many scenes in Newark, followed by um, No Time to Die, followed by Halloween Kills, followed by Dune, and then we wrap it up with Last Night in Soho. Before we get into November and December, we've got a lot of bonus content. I've got a lot of directors ranked coming at you guys for the rest of the year. I've got obviously, you know, I'm wrapping up my Sopranos rewatch, so I'll have you, so I'll have a decent amount of Sopranos content coming your guys' way by the end of the year. Um, what's it called? You know, and obviously on the Marvel front as well. Oh, don't worry, uh, uh, you MCU fans out there. We've got you. I will be going live on Thursday night this week with Joe of Guy at the Movies and AJ of AJ Reacts 2 in order to talk about that Spider-Man trail that dropped last week and as well as the next episode of What If. I've got a couple more Spider-Man-related content coming before the end of the year in time for Spider-Man No Way Home. And obviously, you know, the Oscars are coming. And so if you guys, again, I had a really, really awesome time with my Oscars draft at the beginning of the year with Pat and the rest of the panel that we had. I would definitely recommend that you guys check that out. If you haven't already, I would also recommend, hey, if you if you have any ideas for any more Oscars-related content that I, that I can do, leave them in the comments section below. I've got a couple more TV things that I've got planned for you guys before the end of the year. With um, what's it called? Obviously, you know, with 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 the annual talking TVs, we didn't do them in July like we did last year. But I've got uh, I've what's it called? But don't worry, that is still coming before the end of the year. Don't you guys worry? I've still got a because of, we we there was still too much good television that happened during the pandemic to not talk about. So obviously, we'll be getting you guys that uh, all of this content, all of this content and more coming to you guys. And you know, how you guys can continue to support us, support you know, support myself, support Chris. You guys know how you can do it. You can click on the subscribe button down below. You can click the like button next to it. You can, you know, really just click anything on the page overall. You know, again, subscribe to our channel, click the bell next to it. So you can get notified every time we put up new content. We do this for you. 
We do this for you, the people. You know, you, the people, are the ones who watch this, who give this content legitimacy, who allow us to be freelance you know, freelance workers in a world that is slowly becoming more and more author authoritarian by the minute. And we have to, uh, what's it called? You know, we have to continue to give you the people, you know, what it is that you deserve. We have to, and you guys can, and, but, but we can only do that if you click the subscribe button. I'm not going to dare to steal Chris's thunder by attempting to, uh, what's it called? You know, by attempting to do his statistic joke that he does every time. But I will definitely say that it is, um, What's it called? You, you got you guys know the drill. You know a certain percentage of uh, what's it called? You know a certain percentage of something or another of your YouTube viewers are of the people who watch your videos are not actually watching. But you guys can change that by clicking the subscribe button. You can also follow us on all of our social media pages at Talking TV Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, where I post every single day, twice a day. You guys can also check us out on. Uh, what's it called? Well, there's nowhere else that you can check us out right now, but we are going to be, I will say this right now, we are going to be getting into TikTok. Unfortunately, I again, I, it was something that I fought against, but we know that just with the coming times, we are going to have to. So look forward to that. You know, if you, any of you TikTokers out there, you know, definitely look out for the talking TV starting to pop up on there. We'll have some interesting content coming for you guys that way. All that more, we've got all this content coming to you guys, and you can continue to support us again. Following us on our social medias, cl clicking the subscribe button down below. Follow me on my personal social media at Movie Nerd Reviews on Facebook and Instagram. Follow Chris on his personal social medias on Facebook, on Facebook, Instagram, every place at Christian Ivanko, E V A N K O, where he's got a lot of tracks that he's working on. That was it. That's this is officially the end of the summer. School's back in session, even though it's still warm. I know we're getting into fall movie season next. It's been a lot of fun. I it's been a lot of fun recapping this, frankly, dreadful summer, I'll say, but it ended on a high note at the very least. So, with that being said, again, I have no one but you guys to thank for that. And you guys know what I'm going to say, how I'm going to end it. We'll be back next week for Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Back into the gambit, back into the MCU of it all. 12 seasons of a short film and watch more fucking movies. We'll see you guys next time.